Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. My name is Mike Savage. I work at the LSE. I'm Professor of Sociology. And I also convene a a programme of research at the International Inequalities Institute around the themes of wealth, elites and tax justice. I'm very pleased to welcome Tomiwa Owolade to our online audience and our audience in person. Tomiwa writes about cultural, social and literary issues for the New Statesman, The Times, The Sunday Times, The Observer, Unheard and The Evening Standard. And he is the author of a book published next week, I think. This is not America. Why Black Lives in Britain Matter. So today we'll be exploring some of the themes in Tomiwa's new book, in which he argues that too much of the conversation around race and racism in Britain is viewed through American spectacles that don't reflect the history, challenges and achievements of an increasingly diverse black population here in the UK. Should be an exciting and enjoyable discussion. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is Tash LSE Festival. So please do use that if you're on Twitter to spread the word about this event, but also about the book. Please, can you put your phones on silent? The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, so long as there are no technical difficulties. The plan will be, I think, for to me, we to speak for about 15 minutes or so. I will then ask him a few questions and have a discussion with him about some of the themes of the book, which I have read in advance, and which also links to some of the work I've been doing around questions of race and class in the UK and internationally. So we'll do that for another 15 minutes or so. Then we'll throw it open to the audience for any questions you may have. And the questions will be open to people online, um, but also to people in person. We'll try and make sure you both get a chance to contribute to the debate. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, Tommy, would you want to say a few words about your book and why we should read it and what its highlights are? You should read my book because it's amazing. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, Mike, for that warm and insightful introduction. So the initial idea for the book came to me in the summer of 2020 during the height of the George Floyd protests that were taking place in London. And one particular incident really sparked the genesis of the book. Somebody informed me that a group of students from my old university, UCL, had sent a letter to the English faculty accusing the English faculty of institutional racism. But in that particular letter, they used the word BIPOC. And for those of you that don't know, BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous people of colour. So the students accused the faculty of racism against BIPOC people in the UK. Now, BIPOC would make sense in America. It would make perfect sense in America because the various indigenous communities in America have clearly been oppressed and discriminated against. What I found strange was what a word like Um, BIPOC was doing in a UK context when people talk about defending the rights or protecting the rights of indigenous communities in a UK context that carries with it a far more 
far-right resonance rather than something that you would expect a progressive activist to express. So that was the initial idea, the idea that all too often we unthinkingly internalize a very specifically American way of thinking about race and racism. So once, once that event happened, I started to reflect more seriously on the ways in which the experiences of black and other ethnic minority people in the UK um, differ from the experiences of ethnic minority people in America. And I think there are obvious striking differences when you think of demography, for example. So in America, the black American population constitutes about 13% of the overall American population, whereas in the UK, the black population constitutes only about 4% of the overall UK population. Another striking thing about America is that there are so many American cities and towns and communities across the southern black belt where the majority of the population are African Americans, whereas in the UK, the area with the largest black population is London, and black people only constitute about 14% of the population in London. So in America, it's much um, easier to have an exclusively black social circle because the population of black people in America is much larger and also because the history of segregation in America, the legacy of that is still present to this day. It's present in things like school and it's also present in things like geography as well. By contrast, in the UK, I would say that something like school, for example, race isn't the dividing line in British schools. I would argue that classes... Um, and if we look at, for example, just black people in the UK, what we notice is that when we use a term like the black British community, singular, that is, in my mind, an inadequate term because I think it obscures the diversity within the label of black and British. So just to use a couple of examples... Black Caribbean pupils in the UK are excluded at three times the rate of black African pupils. So if you're a black Caribbean pupil, you are three times more likely to be excluded from school than if you're a black African pupil. And I think differences like these matter because when we talk about inequality, I think they should be rooted in material circumstances rather than reflect in any kind of abstraction. So if we genuinely care about the inequalities in a society, we need to be more specific in our focus rather than making um, vast generalizations. This isn't just true of black British people in particular, but it's also true of all ethnic minority people. For example, the um, ethnic minority groups in the UK that tend to do best in terms of educational attainment are British Indian and British Chinese pupils. And therefore, I think terms like BAME, B-A-M-E, are completely inadequate because why should we assume that the experiences of, say, a British Indian um, person or a British Chinese person should necessarily align with the interests and also the experiences of a black Caribbean person or even other 
supposedly white ethnic minority groups like the traveler um, and Roma communities as well would tend to be discriminated most, I would argue, in terms of education and educational outcomes. So my book makes two main points, um, which is that in terms of race and ethnicity, we are not like America. That's the first point. The second point uh, is that in terms of race and ethnicity, we need to be more specific in our focus, and we need to look at groups and also individuals, not through the lens exclusively of their race and ethnicity, but also take into account other various factors, such as class, geography, culture, family formation, religion, language. And I think this is important for a couple of reasons. It's important because it allows us to have a more fine-grained approach to thinking about and also trying to combat the inequalities in our society. But I think it's also important because I think it allows us to affirm the indivisible dignity of each and every individual as well. I'll stop for now and and see if Mike has got (laughs) questions for me. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Tomiwa. And you really, I think, highlight the kind of key message of the book, which is not to overgeneralise about issues of race and racism and to recognise specificity Mm. and the need to locate these issues very clearly in particular country contexts. I have to say, you know, I'm a sociologist uh, who has worked a lot on UK issues over most of my career, but also internationally, to increasing extent actually working in South Africa and certain parts of Europe and parts of South America. I think you, you identify a really important point, which is, which is really uh, significant across the social sciences, which is the, the power of the American models mm. which we work with. It's not that it's just about race, it's about all, all sorts of ways in which we think and the dominance of those models and the need to contest the kind of the, the, their power. Anecdotally, just to give you an example of how, you know, the issues you raised strike chord with me in a number of ways. So four or five years ago, I went to give a talk at the University of Curaçao, which is in the Dutch Caribbean. If any of you know it, it's a um, small island, still part of uh, the Netherlands. It's still, still a colony of the Netherlands, if you want. And it was the centre of the Dutch slave trade. Uh, my visit, I went to a museum of slavery, which is extremely interesting, and and it really was nuanced in the specific experience of the Dutch slave trade, which I found very interesting. And then, right at the end of the museum, you suddenly enter this gallery, which is all about the 1960s American civil rights movement. Nothing to do with Curaçao, nothing to do with the Dutch, you know, colonial experience, and suddenly you get plunged into Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and that sort of, it did feel very jarring, partly in the style in which it was done. So it did struck me at the time. On the other hand, this is the answer to the question I put to you, I can see because those motifs of the civil rights movement and the anti-racism of the 60s, because they were so powerful and because they have such global currency, I can see they might still be important resources to draw upon yeah. all over the world just because of their iconic power. Yeah. So... For those reasons, should we actually still, you know, give some value and some credibility to those messages in our thinking about that race in the UK? Yeah, I think that's, that's a, um, a perfectly reasonable point to make because um, but what I would say is that the lessons from the civil rights movement were not only adopted by black people, 
across the world. So I, I know that in Northern Ireland, for example, the civil rights movements to try and protect the rights of Irish Catholic people in Northern Ireland were clearly inspired by the civil rights movements against white supremacism in America. So that underlying message of fighting against discrimination and inequality, I think, can be adopted by anyone because it's, it's all about the underlying principles rather than, say, any maybe particular fine-grained similarities or, or not. But, yeah, I, I do think, because what many people would say is that, uh, well, what about racial solidarity, the importance of racial solidarity? And I think that's, that's a perfectly fair point to make. What I would say is that you can also have solidarity not on the basis of race, but on the basis of shared moral values. And the reason why I say that as well is because the idea of racial solidarity necessarily assumes that the values of black people across the world are necessarily the same, which is clearly not the case because there are many black people that might be conservative. There are, of course, many black people that are liberal. Um, there are many black people that are socialists. Um, black people do not constitute a homogenous block. And I think the risk of just assuming that there is this shared racial solidarity presupposes that. I think solidarity should be ultimately predicated on shared moral values. Thank you much. So at the start of Tommy Wood's book, you discuss a number of areas of theoretical thinking about mm. how American models have become so influential. And one of the chapters is devoted to critical race theory. Mm which is a really, uh, has become a very influential body of thought and very contentious in the US context. So, you know, some states are banning it because it seems to be too subversive and too radical and so on. And it's certainly gaining a lot of power and traction in the, in, mm. in the UK. What you try and do is emphasise how it's rooted in the American experience. Sure. You, you look at the way in which yeah. notions of self-help and social mobility yeah. is all yeah. tied up with that critical race course, theory. Yeah. I, take, I take that, but I have to say, one area of critical race theory, which I find quite powerful is actually what they talk about to do with the, the way in which white interests get institutionalised. Because mm. my reading critical race theory is it's talking about the kind of the way in which state structures and corporate structures, legal structures, are tied in with forms of you know, racial power. Obviously, a classic example of that is apartheid in South Africa, mm. but it can be generalised. A lot of your book is looking at, in very interesting and thoughtful ways, looking at the black experience. But if you are also, as we have to be, interested in kind of how white people... Mm. are organised and how they're powerful. Mm. I do think critical race theory can be useful in those terms. So I'm yeah. kind of wanting to say a bit about you know, your reflections upon critical race theory. <laughs> can it be useful at all? Um, <laughs> or should it be? So, yeah, um, th there's this um, idea amongst um, certain, in particular, American conservatives that see critical race theory as a kind of Marxism, as an ideology that's foreign to America. And I would argue that critical race theory is a fundamentally American way of looking at the world. It's rooted in American law, in American constitutional law. The founder of critical race theory was this man called Derek Bell, and um, he was a constitutional lawyer. And his central thesis which is, um, has been shared and adopted by many um, subsequent people that espouse critical race theory, is that 
America has fundamentally failed to live up to the moral and constitutional values that it professes to believe. So I, I think it's American in that sense because it still sees America as this exceptional moral country, even though it disavows that. But in disavowing that, it presupposes that America is the model by which race and racism and inequality um, should be judged. American values, I mean, should be the model by which these things should be judged and evaluated. What I would say about what you say about whiteness and about the protection of whiteness is that I guess it would depend on how widely or how thinly you would define whiteness and we would be included in the category of whiteness. Mm -hmm. Because recently I I, I wrote um, a column in which I I said that um, racism, for example, isn't just something that affects only black and brown people. There are certain ethnic minority groups that are often racialized as white, but nevertheless experience various forms of racism and discrimination. So I, I, I mentioned, for example, traveler and Roma communities, um, Irish people, um, and, and of course, Jewish people as well. So I, I think it would depend on how far and, and you, you would sort of define whiteness, because again, yep. I, I don't think whiteness is this abstract thing which just exists out of particular material um, context and circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Um, because ironically, and I would agree with the many critical race theorists, I think rightly argue that whiteness is an invention of circumstances. So they would argue that racism gave birth to race. Um, race did not give birth to racism. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, many of them still cling to, I think, a very fixed notion of race and whiteness. So I, I, I think yeah. it would depend on okay. how you define it. Well, yeah, but so my next question, in a way, touches on this issue from another angle. So in the second part of your book, you mm. sort of talk about the, the, the lived experience of, of sure. black British people, you know, and yeah. explore that across different domains, and it's very yeah. interesting. And obviously you draw upon your own experiences yeah. very intriguingly. And you, and you make this really important point, which mm. is about the fact that we should not assume, because there is racial disparity across mm. many, many indicators of well-being, that means there's necessarily um, institutional racism causing these disparities. All sorts of reasons why there could be mm. inequalities mm. in the uh, experiences or in the incomes or educational outcomes or whatever, different ethnic groups, different racial groups. Important point to, to recognise that you know, we cannot assume, we cannot read off from racial disparity that there is you know, racism at work. Yeah. So, but I was left a bit unclear at the end of it as, as to whether you think there is... In, it's still useful to use the concept of institutional racism, yeah. whilst recognising it's not necessarily the only thing at work, yeah, yeah, yeah. but within certain areas yeah. it's important. But yeah. Whether you think the whole concept is in a way not really helping us unpack the... Yeah, I, I think there are circumstances where um, terms like institutional racism is useful. So um, mm. the police, for example, mm-hmm. or, or more recently the fire department. So there was that recent report that came out in December... Mm-hmm. Um, last year, which um, found institutional racism in the fire department. So I'm not opposed to the use of that term. Mm-hmm. I just think that racism is not the only thing that is causing inequalities in our society. I think there, there are two ways to look at it. If, if we assume that all ethnic minority people experience 
inequality simply on the basis of their race and nothing else, then I don't think you would be able to find a satisfactory way to account for the vast disparities in terms of educational outcome, employment outcome, and also interaction with the criminal justice system. So, for example, if we say that BAME people, for example, are oppressed by the police in the UK, then, yeah, that that applies, of course, to black people, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't apply to British Chinese people and British Indian people, which is not to say that racism doesn't cause the way in which um, black people are oppressed by the police. I, I think it does. It's just to say that when we think about racism, we should have a more fine-grained and nuanced approach to it rather than what I think is this very simplistic approach that many of us have adopted. Okay. Lots of questions bubbling up, I'm sure, with this. Let me ask my last question. Um, because you have, also have a chapter on empire, and, and of course yeah. that's a really contentious issue, yeah. isn't it? And, yeah. and for instance, Winston Churchill, you know, yeah. who is pretty clearly racist, you know, if you read it, he doesn't hide his tracks very well. You can find mm. all sorts of quotes about what he thought about Indians and black people and so forth. And yet, you know, he was the kind of saviour of Britain during the Second World War. So, mm. kind of, how we deal with the legacy of empire, which yeah. is deeply contentious. Um, and of course, LSE, like all universities, is thinking about decolonisation, what it sure, means to sure. try and become an open space, an inclusive space, which is not privileged on certain assumptions. So I wondered if perhaps you want to talk a little bit about what you think about empire, but also putting back to you the issue, because mm. you might say that the, the, the point you began with, or the book focuses on, about the dominance of the American model, in a mm. way that is a sign of colonial power almost. Yeah, you could say so it's, that. So it's actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, are you calling for a certain kind of decolonisation? <laughs> so we still need to have that in our mind, even though we yeah. may contest some of the ways in which it's argued for. Yeah, it's, it's, I think the American thing, it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural imperial um, thing because it's, um, it's not something which is coerced or done through violence. I think, again, with, with the issue of empire, I think the debate about it is too morally simplistic and, and it lacks any sense of sophistication and nuance. And and I think even when we talk about what it means to be a colonised subject or what it means to experience colonialism, we need to take it on a case-by-case basis rather than just looking at it through one singular perspective. So the experiences of empire for a black Caribbean person in the UK is, in general, quite different to the experiences of how a black African person would experience empire. So just to say, um, and this is something I forgot to mention earlier, so up until about 25 years ago, the majority of black British people in the UK were black Caribbean people. Um, But over the past 20, 25 years, um, there's been a massive influx of immigration from Africa And now there are twice as many um, black African people in the UK as black Caribbean people, which means that the majority of black people in the UK, as of today, are not the descendants of the victims of the transatlantic slave trade. And I think being the descendants of enslaved Africans taken to the New World 
deprived of your language, your culture, your origins, shapes the way that you look at um, society, I think. I, I think it must influence the way you look at society. And, and I think that if you are a black African person, you are in the UK, you are either, as of today, either an immigrant or the children of immigrants, and you came to the UK from an independent African country, and you still retain your, your language, your um, distinct culture. And, and, and so I think even though these two black communities um, are both colonized, share the same history of colonialism, um, there are important differences within that history. And, and I think that needs, this, this also needs to be incorporated in debates as well. Um, I, I think another thing I'll mention is that when we think of British Asian people as well, we need to be more nuanced in, in our discussion. So, for example, I mention in my book the experiences of British Asian people whose families immigrated from Africa, from East Africa, mm-hmm. and, and many of them are now senior <laughs> members of the Tory party, yes, yes. including our current <laughs> prime minister. Um, yes. But but I think one way to explain, because this is something that some people have wondered, why why is it the case that many British um, Asian people from African backgrounds espouse conservative values? And and I think one way to think about it is to um, acknowledge the fact that if you come from that particular background, you basically can't trust the state to protect you. So you have an attitude where you need to rely upon your own individual work ethic. You need to be a capitalist in that sense um, because you can't necessarily trust the state because the state didn't protect um, Asian communities in post-colonial Uganda and Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that assumption has carried through to, to many of them. And, and I think this is different. This is very different to the experiences of British, Pakistani or British Bangladeshi people that came to the UK from Asia and, and both these Asian, all of these Asian communities all share broadly the same experiences of colonialism and colonization but the way that manifests itself is different and I think we need to acknowledge and incorporate those differences in thinking about it and analysing race. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So I think it's time to open it up for questions. We have about 25 minutes left. So what we'll try and do is, I think, make it into a bit of a discussion rather than a Q&A backwards and forwards. And I'm looking at Pete to see if there's any online questions. No, nothing online. So let's just take perhaps three questions from the floor, um, and then we can have some, some answers afterwards. Okay, yes, you, you at the back there. And please say who you are and your know, name and affiliation, please. Hello, uh, my name is Calvin. I represent the interests of European Banti, um, which is a non-profit organisation dealing with China, Europe stuff. So, obviously, I am white. I am, I'm very white. If you put me outside, I'll reflect the sun. But I'm also from South Africa. I'm born and raised in that country. I was raised speaking English, Afrikaans, and Hossa. I did the whole shebang. So, you both touched upon whiteness. I'd be interested in both of your perspectives on what whiteness is. Mm. 
And then also the other topic is I couldn't agree more. I think it was profoundly salient what you're saying about recognizing the individuality of experience. I vehemently agree. But do not think it's a good starting point to have these umbrella terms yeah. to be able to initiate conversations yeah. when there's already such strong resistance against just having the conversation at all. Sure. I feel like greater individuality may drown out the conversation. So just the lines between that and, and what, you, what you think. Okay. Thank you. Okay. How do you define whiteness, Mike? Oh, you, can start, you can start. Actually, anyone else want to ask any questions, or should we, should we look at that one first? Yeah, at the back there, the white, white cap. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name's Tom. I'm a student out of Manchester Grammar School. How strong do you think is the relationship between class, more so bourgeois, uh, class ownership, and the kind of rejection of uh, solidarity in race, solidarity in values, solidarity in moral values. You know, Klaskis, I remember you, I studied this two days ago, I heard about it. It was um, Kenya, where a lot of British Asian people have immigrated from. And Priti Patel, I think, Priti Patel's family come from that. She kind of has forwarded this rhetoric of consistent anti-critical race theory which is, it seems kind of confusing, uh, considering her background. But do you think it could be explained by perhaps a class and perhaps a economic status? Yeah, I, I, I do think class is the um, major elephant in the room when, when it comes to conversations about inequalities in our, in our society. And, and there's, there's something else that I forgot to mention, which, which, which I think, again, relates to class. So I, I, I went to um, a state comprehensive school in, in London, and my school was both um, ethnically mixed, but also mixed in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds as well. But the striking thing about my school is that the, both the white middle-class kids and the white working-class kids were all friends, or at least friendly, with all the ethnic minority kids of whatever class background but the white working class kids, generally speaking, were not friends with the white middle class kids and vice versa. And this is something that I've only really noticed in, in retrospect, which I find fascinating because when we tend to think about inequality in education, we, 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 we tend to think of the division between um, private schools and um, state schools. But even within state schools, I, I still think there is that important socioeconomic divide to, to the point of the, the ways in which class interest um, influences people's um, political beliefs. I, I, I think that that is true to an extent. But again, I'm sceptical about any kind of reductionist way of looking at things. Um, so even though I do think that that is true to an extent, I can't say that class definitively shapes the way that um, people look at the world in terms of the values that they espouse. Let me try and link the two questions, because you asked about my, my thoughts on, on whiteness, but also about, about class. And, and, I, and I've done a lot of work on class mm. um, over many years, most, most famously, I suppose, with the Great British Class Survey, which came out about 10 years ago. They had this big BBC web survey, and everyone could tick in there few questions and see which class they were in. You can still do it if you're interested. If you Google class calculator, you can, you can find out which class you're in. So I'm, I've always been interested in class. Um, I also went to a comprehensive school in London. Uh, so, you know, we, uh, <laughs> different generation, different race, but yeah. some, some uh, overlaps there. 
But I've also got really interested more in the kind of overlap between, between racial divisions and, and um, class mm. divisions in a certain kind of way, and particularly at the top end, mm. uh, particularly around the elite and the upper middle class, because, and just to give you a flavour of some of, the, some of the overlaps, which I think are very powerful, if you've got time after this, you can look at the maps we have over there and the, and the festival exhibition, and I have a little, uh, well, I have some maps on uh, the work we have done on uh, UK non-domiciled taxpayers. So these, these non-doms, as they're often called, are people who um, they're living in the UK. So they're living in the UK, they have to file a tax return, but they claim they're non-domiciled, which means that they're claiming that their permanent home is somewhere else in the world. And if you do that, you get certain tax breaks, most, mainly that you don't have to pay any tax on your overseas assets. You probably all know that the wife of the Prime Minister famously was outed as a non-dom last year and caused a bit of consternation. But the interesting thing is, so this is, this is a kind of tax perk for certain kinds of people. And on the whole, non-doms are wealthy people because you have, these days you have to pay a, a, a fee to claim as a non-dom. So the only reason you pay that fee is if you have big assets to hide. But the overarching, um, the, the kind of people who, who we think I should mention my colleagues, um, Aaron Nadvani and David Burgo and Andy Summers on this project. The kind of people who we think are these non-DOMs, even though they're international by definition, is very much predominantly uh, white, white elites, because the countries in which they tend to have come from, or which they claim as their nationality, are places like Australia and Canada, USA, other European nations, South Africa, but we assume it's mostly white South Africans. So I do think at the, at the privileged end of the social um, spectrum, if you like, the, the, the whiteness and the class, upper class categories do overlap. Um, and I think that is a very powerful feature of the British class structure. I have a PhD student called Emma Taylor, um, who graduated last year. She's working in the LSE now as an LSE fellow, teaches our undergraduate students, who did this wonderful ethnographic, you know, detailed study of a British private school um, one, of, one of Britain's top private schools, actually. She's a teacher there. And it's, at one level, uh, not all the kids are white these days. Okay? There are um, a, a smattering, a, a smatter, more than a smattering of uh, minority kids. But she was also interested in, despite the fact, despite the fact the school talks about diversity all the time, you know, makes a big fuss about we're really open, actually the assumptions are still based around these forms of whiteness and uh, sort of kind of imperial assumptions including things like you know getting people's names wrong in the award ceremony and 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 things like that so my feeling is that sure in certain in some ways there is more diversity at the top but we should not really necessarily assume there's a fundamental change in the cultural values and i think you see that in the way um, governments operate i could talk much more about this but uh, any more questions there's a question. Yeah. Hello, thank you, sir. Very interesting. Um, I, my question is um, about this obsession with America and, and taking it as a model. I'm uh, Franco-British. I was born in France, and um, I, I, the issue of racism, for instance, is very is reframing some of the discourses in France. Uh, in France, the word race is racist. You can't really say la race is, 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 a, is a racist word in itself. It's a bit odd. So uh, black people who at the moment are sort of reclaiming, uh, they called it racialized uh, people, um, reclaiming the word. Anyway, but my question, I haven't read your book yet, um, is about, don't you think there's also in this obsession, you said it, um, or you know, uh, perhaps black people um, 
think the situation is the same or are making uh, parallels, but I think white people as well in this country are using America as a way not to actually look at themselves. And um, I remember when Trump came, suddenly everybody, oh, let's just all meet uh, in front of number 10, or, you know. And I, just, I was thinking, this is, this is a bit weird, you know, that you have a dysfun- dysfunctional government and you're not going to go on the street, but Trump is coming and that's a big issue. Anyway, so that's my question. Is, it, is that, I don't know whether you talk about question. That. Let's try and get a couple, shall we? And then we can get some answers. Yeah, you. you, you. Hi, uh, my question, um, my name's Shadia. Um, it's actually very similar to the gentleman. Um, we do know that terms like BAME and BIPOC just don't account for all the things that you've spoken about today. But where do we kind of go from here mm. to still have that racial solidarity but move past these terms? Like, what do you see, think is next? Mm. Good question. One more, perhaps, if there is one. Yeah, if the gentleman over there. Yes, there are a number of issues there that are profound in many respects. My question is relating to colonialism and empire, as you mentioned. I'm just curious as to whether you mentioned values internalized both in the USA and in UK. But let's be realistic. In terms of white interest, control both institutions and economics globally. In your experience, do you think combating inequalities and exclusion, but we need a new, say, international or global model to combat the disparities? Thank you. Okay, do you want to reply to any and all? Any, 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 any and all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, do, I do take your points about the way that some white people would use the... Um, phrase, Britain is not America, therefore we shouldn't focus on race at all. I think that's a valid and valuable point to make. What I would say is that just focusing on race is is not enough, I think. Because just to use your um, example of France, for example, so in the 50s and the 60s, many African Americans, as, as I'm sure you know, moved to France. And the reason why they moved to France was because they felt that France was um, a far less racist country than America, um, and they felt liberated when they moved to France. Um, So I'm thinking of writers like Richard Wright and um, James Baldwin. But what was striking is that... um, So there was another African-American that moved to France. I um, I think his name is William Gardner-Smith. And what what he said and what he wrote is that even though many... um, African-Americans um, moved to France, they, and, and they saw France as this fantastically liberating country, many of them um, failed to pay any attention to the racism and discrimination against Algerian people. So when they, when they were in France in the 50s and 60s, um, this was during the time of the Algerian War of Independence, where there was incredible racism and violence um, done to the um, Algerian people and other colonised subjects in um, Francophone North Africa. And, and again, and, and I think this, this links back to my point, which is that it, it's all about emphasis and all about um, focus and all about nuance, because f- from their perspective, 
France was um, a perfect country. But from the perspective of somebody from Algeria or from Francophone North Africa, France was the oppressor. I, yeah, again, I think, I think that's, that's why um, emphasis um, is important and nuance is important and taking national context into account is important. In terms of, because I think those two questions are interlinked. Yep. Yeah, I, I do think we should have a more international approach to inequality. But, but, but I think that there is a risk in, in if we just have a, a blanket approach, we, we can't take into account the way that inequality manifests in each particular country. So we can't take into account the particular or peculiar ways that racial and other forms of inequality manifest in each country, which is why, again, I emphasise the importance of solidarity on the basis of shared values, shared moral values, rather than solidarity on the basis of being non-white, which I also find quite condescending as well and quite patronising, the idea that simply because I share um, a lack with somebody else, that we were both non-white, that we should necessarily have um, a shared sense of solidarity. And I think another reason why is it also doesn't take into account the fact that there are various non-white countries across the world where anti-black racism is still a very prevalent force. And, and there are various um, non-white countries in the world where other forms of racism against other non-white ethnic minorities is still mm. a prevalent force. What about the issue about the BAME, Bame. terms? I think it's yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I, I understand why, why BAME exists because it, it tries to make sense of racism and inequality, but I, I'm, I'm still sceptical about the way it's applied, the applicability of the term, because it's not clear to me what... Um, so, for example, would Traveller and Roma people be included in BAME? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fact yeah. that that's not even clear mm. is a bit confusing to me. And p- people of colour is another term which I find a bit perplexing because it's not clear to me how you would define colour in that way. Mm. It's partly a question about politics, though, isn't it? Exactly. So if, if you don't have that term, yeah, yeah, uh, for we, all these problems, we, yeah. what term do we use instead? Or, yeah. But yeah. let's get some final round of questions yeah. and then, yeah, there's one over here. Hi, uh, my name is Saurav. Um, I am born and brought up in India, so I'm, I'm very new here. Uh, it's been two years. Um, I work as an economist um, in climate policy. And my question is a bit contemporary organizational question. When I came here and I started um, looking at organization, how they function, I found it very interesting that they all had the EI com- uh, committees, uh, diversity and inclusion. And the way they operated, uh, I find it very weird in the values and the way it kind of um, boils down on how they practice these DEI values. So I wanted to ask you uh, this question on these diversity committees that apparently every organization has now. I'm sure LSE has, has as well. And try to kind of really, because I don't have an opinion and view on these committees, um, but there are definitely some pros in, in the way they approach this problem. But at the same time, it becomes a compliance thing 
for many organizations to do it. Um, so do you have any opinion or stance on these DEI committees, what they're doing right, where they're completely getting the point wrong? Yeah, it's, it seems like every organization has one. Um, somebody was telling me that the, um, even um, the, the Times, they've got a diversity <laughs> and equity and inclusion committee. I, I wonder if they managed to get Rupert Murdoch to, uh, to come and attend that. Uh, uh, again, I, I think the, the risk in, in um, a lot of these initiatives is that um, many organizations would say that, well, well we've got a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. Therefore, we've done our bit. Mm. Therefore, we can move on, which I think is a risk because many organizations would approach it in a very cynical manner. And I think it relates, again, to what you were saying earlier about the way some, some people sort of yeah. um, promote diversity without actually materially changing the um, institutions. I mean, yeah, parking stuff, I yeah, thought yeah, on that too. Because yeah, exactly. uh, the LSE is a very, you know, I think the LSE is really exposed on this issue, actually, because we have a very diverse student body. Um, but the actual, if you look at the senior professoriate at the LSE, um, it's incredibly white. And LSE is, very, is kind of aware of it, and, and there, there are kind of policies in place. Um, but I think this also goes back to the issue about how certain kinds of whiteness do get institutionalised. And, mm. and, and actually, in the case of the LSE, it is being recorded, but hopefully it's not going to cause too, much, too many eruptions up front. <laughs> um, you know, they, they value... The best thing you can do if you're an LSE academic is to publish in an American journal. You know, mm. They're the best in the world. Therefore, the more you publish in the American sure. Sociological Review, the better it is for your career. So you're absolutely right that those forms of privilege and whiteness and eliteness go hand in hand with the valuing of America as the mm. kind of dominant force. So in that respect, I think you're really on a, a powerful thing. But, I do, but there are specific issues, definitely, around you know, how we tackle um, diversity. Yeah. And I think, I'm sure in the Times, it probably is a bit of window dressing. Definitely. But it doesn't mean it's not important, actually, yeah. in, uh, yeah. in, in, yeah. in numerous environments. OK, uh, we've got, we got perhaps... Is, is that a question? Yes, it's yeah, a question, yeah. Just wait for the microphone. Thanks. Well, whilst uh, sort of fully agreeing with the drift of what you're saying, I'm surprised you don't make more of the anti-Semitism in supporting your case. Uh, I'm sure you've read David Baddiel's book. Uh, I, I, I mentioned anti-Semitism in my book. You, you, and and right. I, did, I did mention it earlier. Okay. The, yes, yeah. you did. I'm just surprised <laughs> you didn't. I mean, after all, the greatest crime of the 20th century was committed against the Jews. I'm, I'm just wondering if this is a sort of partly an ideological thing to do with uh, the left's obsession with those they identify as being suitable victims of, of racism, which do not include Jews. I mean, uh, are you supportive of that, of the notion that the left tend to exclude Jews from their model of racial victimization? I think it's definitely true of parts of the left, um, so I, I think the, um, the clerics' example of this is um, Diane Abbott, um, who, re who recently um, wrote a letter um, to a column written in The Observer, which argued that um, racism affects um, other ethnic minority groups often racialized as white, including Jews. And she mentioned that Jews were not forced to sit at the back of the bus in... Um, up, uh, in Jim Crow America, and they were not discriminated against in apartheid South Africa, um, w without, of course, um, 
mentioning um, the greatest genocide of the 20th century. So I, I do think there is definitely a part of the left um, which um, doesn't incorporate um, anti-Semitism into their analysis because anti-Semitism is, is a, a, a very particular kind of racism. It, it's a racism against, um, against a group that's seen as more powerful rather than a racism against a group that's seen as, as less powerful. Um, and in fact, um, um, a social democrat called um, August Babel once described anti-Semitism as the socialism of the fools, um, by, by which I think it meant that um, it, it appeals to somebody um, that, that's a bit obsessed with conspiratorial power. Um, and, and I think a risk of, of seeing everything in a slightly conspiratorial sense is that it can lend itself to anti-Semitism, which, which again links to what I was saying about racial disparities and the inequalities in society, because I think increasingly some people would say that, oh, well, you know, Jewish people, they seem like quite a privileged community, um, therefore they can't be victims of racism. Um, and that lends credibility to one of the key tropes of anti-Semitism. Okay, I think we're probably reaching the end. It's, as, as you can see, uh, Tommy's book opens up lots of issues. It's really, I really encourage you to read it. Uh, it really elaborates the debate on race and racism in the UK. Oh, in five days, in all good, <laughs> good bookshops. And, and, and some can, bad ones as well. But you can also sign it over yeah, here, I believe. Yeah, I believe if yeah. you want well, to get a they're copy. They're available, yeah, they're available yes. over there. Um, you might even sign it afterwards if you're going to hang around. Yes, definitely. So, so thank you everyone so much, Tommy. Well, thank you for coming. And, and can you please give a warm round of thank applause? You, thank, you, thank, you, thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.